You're now listening to episode 88 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costello here today with Amy Wan, founder and CEO of Bootstrap Legal, a company which automates real estate syndication legal documents. She's also co-founder and CEO of SageWise, a legal blockchain company, and co-host of the Law and Blockchain podcast. Previously, she was partner at a boutique securities law firm and general counsel at a real estate crowdfunding platform. In today's episode, we discuss how Bootstrap Legal automates and streamlines the creation of PPMs, subscription agreements, and other documents involved in the syndication process, when to get your CPA involved to review your syndication documents, the legalities of raising capital as a business, and how setting great expectations with business associates from the beginning is key to success, plus so much more. What's up, everyone? If you're a frequent listener of the Real Estate CPA podcast, then you already know what's coming up this weekend on February 29th and March 1st. That's right. It's the first ever tax and legal summit for real estate investors. This event is designed to inform you of the tax and asset protection strategies that can save you thousands in taxes and help protect the assets that you work so hard to build. We'll be raising prices to $297 tomorrow per ticket. But if you hurry, you can still get your ticket today for only $97 by visiting www.taxandlegalsummit.com and using promo code RECPA. That's right, only $97. With tax and legal advice ranging anywhere from $300 to $850 per hour, this event is truly a no-brainer. Again, we'll be raising prices tomorrow, but you can still get your ticket today for only $97 by visiting www.taxandlegalsummit.com and using promo code RECPA. We'll look forward to seeing you there. Amy, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got involved with real estate? Of course. Um, well, I think my family has just always been in real estate. I am an attorney by training, but interestingly, I actually started my career in federal government, um, working for the Department of State, Department of Transportation, Department of Commerce. And it wasn't until I moved back to the West Coast from DC, mostly for personal reasons, um, that I I actually got into real estate more so professionally. I became general counsel of one of the first real estate crowdfunding platforms at the time. And so we did a lot of novel work around new regulations that you could use to raise capital. And from there, I went on to become partner at a boutique firm that specialized in real estate syndication. And today I have my own company, Bootstrap Legal, which is a company that uh, partially automates the drafting of real estate syndication legal documents. And that works in conjunction with the law office of um, Sosno and Associates, which is a securities law firm. Thank you for uh, the introduction. So we do have a few questions around Bootstrap Legal. Uh, Like you said, it automates some of the real estate syndication documents on the legal side. Uh, What documents are automated? Sure. So basically, it automates all the documents that you would need for a standard real estate syndication deal, 
right? And so that includes the PPM or private placement memorandum, which is a very long document that has all the different risks of investment. Um, it will, you know, produce the first draft of the different operating agreements that you'll need. Um, so usually in a real estate syndication, you need at least two entities and two operating agreements, one for the manager company, one for the holding company, and then everything else, you know, subscription agreements, um, the forms that foreign investors have to fill out, so on and so forth. Got it. If I was a syndicator, I'm going to syndicate a deal. What role would I be playing in this process? What would be my responsibilities in the automation? Well, so the way we approach it is that clients don't really know on the back end that the documents are being automated because every single deal that we do is always paired with a law firm or an attorney. Reason being because, you know, um, document automation and AI is good for what is standard. It'll get probably 80% of the job done, right? However, every single deal I've ever done always has some sort of bespoke element. And so we don't really want, you know, especially since these are securities offerings, we don't want clients going off and um, running around with with documents that are that do not precisely reflect the deal. And the truth is, you know, documents are great. Everyone needs documents to raise money. But the truth is what clients really need is the counseling that comes from an attorney. You know, it's, it's the emails that a client sends that says, Hey, can I send this email? Is the language appropriate? Um, Oh, can I raise from this person? It's all those sort of little tiny questions that often get people into trouble. And so, you know, I think the document automation piece of bootstrap legal um, helps to bring the costs down for real estate syndication and lower transactional costs are always a good thing, but they of course are never a substitute for legal advice and legal counseling. Got it. Got it. So just one more question on this end uh, with the automation, does this help reduce the cost of these documents at, at all? Or is it, how does that work in for like pricing, I guess? Yeah. So it does a couple of things, actually. It does reduce the cost a little bit. And because of that, you know, when I used to be a partner at the boutique real estate syndication law firm that I worked at, I rarely ever represented any raises less than a million dollars. And I'm not talking about, you know, the property's worth. I'm, I'm talking about the actual amount that you're raising, right? Simply because the transactional cost oftentimes does not make sense. Because we are able to save some attorney hours in drafting, that actually brings down the cost of legal representation overall which is great for clients because now, you know, on a regular basis, we are representing clients that are doing sub $1 million raises. The other interesting thing is that because some of this is done by technology, um, it's actually faster. So I remember at my old firm that I was at, we used to tell clients, you know, that they should expect their first draft in about one or two weeks. And then, you know, it probably takes a month to get the entire thing done until final documents. With the technology, you know, like I said, 80% of first draft is automated. So we actually turn around the first drafts in about three business days. And when you have something under contract and you only have, you know, 60 days to close, time is of essence, right? Because every additional day you have is very valuable to raising money. And then the last thing is actually that it tends to produce fewer mistakes. You know, I used to 
you know, have to make all these edits to our documents manually. You know, if I was using a template that was for say one property, but this was a two property deal, you'd literally have to go through the entire document and spend maybe five or six hours pluralizing everything is to our property to properties. That's all automated now. So it's easy. Love it. So when do you loop in a CPA when it comes to structuring these operating agreements? Yeah. So it really depends on the deal. To the extent it's a standard deal, we kind of just use the standard um, you know, tax language that we already have that has previously been vetted by a CPA. To the extent it's a more novel or interesting deal, or to the extent you know there are changes to the tax law, that's when we tell clients, hey, go talk to your CPA, especially if they come to us with a question like, you know, I think the other day I got a question like, oh, can we do these interesting things with depreciation? I was like, that's great. I am not a tax attorney. Go talk to your CPA. (laughs) So if I'm a syndicator or, or I'm a GP, I'm syndicating a deal and I get this operating agreement back, I don't have a CPA. I'm only working with an attorney. How can I be sure that the operating agreement has previously been vetted by a CPA? Well, I think that just depends on the reputation of the law firm in general. However, I would say, though, that if they're going through the process of syndication, they don't already have one, they might as well start just searching for one right now because they're going to need it eventually for the K-1s and for all the tax questions that they're going to have. There you go. We'll just uh, we'll play that section on loop for the next 30 <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the podcast, folks. Uh, no, so the reason I ask is we see, I would say like probably 10% of the operating agreements that we see come across our desk are pretty whack when it comes to profit loss allocations and distribution allocations. So we, we, mm. we, we will review the profit loss allocation section, the distribution allocation section. Then we're going to review the, uh, the liquidation section as well. Because we want to know, are there any sort of unintended capital shifts occurring um, is the way that this is written truly reflecting the economics of the deal? And what is this going to look like from a tax perspective? And every once in a while, uh, maybe 10% is high. Maybe that's a little high. But every once in a while, we see something that's just totally, totally whacked out, where the LP, uh, upon like signing the agreement, has you know shifted 30% of their capital account to the GP unintentionally. So if you run across like a situation like that, how can a general partnership go and get it like amended? Like, is there a way to kind of go back to all the limited partners and say, oops, you know, egg on my face, we kind of screwed this up, but we need to amend this and it's in your best interest anyway. How how can you do something like that after you've already raised the capital? Yeah. So there are definitely ways to amend the PPM and the operating agreement. Um, Whether or not it is a painful process kind of depends on how material the change is um, to the deal. You know, the, the underlying question is, would an investor have wanted to know this at the beginning and how fundamentally does this shift the risk of the deal? And to the extent that we say, hey, this is significant, this is material, we're going to ask basically everyone, all the investors and, and the sponsors to sign that amendment. To the extent it's more of a clerical error, like, you know, oh, it said this percentage here in 20 different places, but it was, you know, this here. That's more of a a clerical amendment. And um, that one doesn't need to go through the whole gamut of all the signatures. Got it. Okay, cool. And I should clarify for all of our listeners that Amy's operating agreements are rock solid. I can verify that. So (laughs) the the errors that we typically see are like from the 
I don't want to say local attorneys because I always feel like that's a bad like connotation, but it's like the same thing with CPAs, right? You go to a local CPA, they're marketing locally in their geographic location. So they can't just focus on one thing. Typically, they have to focus on a lot of things to bring in the appropriate amount of business. And you know, I, I, we see the same sort of thing with, uh, with the operating agreements too. So on another note, we wanted to hit the legalities of raising capital and kind of like being a general partner in deals there. So if you are a general partner, you're raising capital, what are some things that you really have to watch out for? I know that there's like that issuer exemption law. I know that you've talked a lot about this. You've put out a lot of content about it too. So love for you to just kind of explain some pitfalls to watch out for and uh, we'll go from there. Sure. So the general rule is that if you are raising money for yourself or your own business, that is always allowed. You still have to obviously follow securities laws and be compliant with all of um, those things, but but that's allowed, right? Um, the interesting thing is that people have been doing some very creative things lately to get around uh, certain securities laws. So basically, you know, I just said that if you're raising money for your own business, now there seems to be this burgeoning industry within the real estate syndication space where there are people who are calling themselves capital raisers and they're not necessarily raising money for themselves. They're raising money for other people, other GPs, other sponsors, other deals, right? And I've seen a ton of different ways that people will structure this, but basically they um, take advantage of the issuer exemption by saying, okay, why don't you give me part of the GP, you know, like 5%, 1%. And then if I'm part of the issuer, then that's no problem. That's not really the way the issuer exemption actually works. You, you, or anybody needs to truly be a part of the management group. And that means not just raising capital, not just doing investor relations, but doing other things in the day-to-day operation of the business. So, you know, I will say that what I want to see out of any sort of sponsor group is that everyone brings some sort of unique skill to the table and that they are all either usually working together on a regular basis in all of their deals. They're not doing a ton of different deals with a ton of different people because that's usually a big red flag. They need to all be listed in all the legal documentation. So the operating agreements, the PPM, you know, for investors, if they will all say that I've, I've heard many stories over the past 12 or 24 months where investors are actually getting PPMs, the same deal from multiple different people. And none of those people are actually listed on the PPM, which is a huge red flag, right? So I'll leave that at that and you can, you can ask me questions if you want. And one of the things I wanted to confirm is that the issuer is the general partnership entity. Is that accurate? Correct. And I just want to add a note that in this industry, there's some terminology that gets thrown around a lot that I think people don't necessarily understand. And general partner or GPLP is one of those things. Um, Everyone seems to call themselves a sponsor or a, a G. They use the GPLP terminology, but technically, a lot of syndications aren't GPLP structures. They're just regular LLC structures. 
let's just say, for example, I, I set up, uh, we're doing a, a syndication and I go and set up one entity that we're going to use as the management entity, uh, the one where all of the, you know, the general partners, if you will, will buy into, right? Mm-hmm. Does that entity become the issuer? Ah, okay. So normally the way a syndication is structured, there is what I call the holding company, which is the issuer. And that is the entity that holds title to the property, right? And that's the same entity that all the investors become members of because they've invested in that entity. Now that entity is actually managed by a separate entity, the manager entity. And that's where the sponsors or the general partners sit. Now this is I will say that this is for smaller syndications by smaller mom and pop shops. There are different structures that we use sometimes for different types of real estate syndication, but it really depends on how much flexibility the sponsor is going to need. And how many times, like, like, let's say that we are doing this legally, uh, which I guess we should go into maybe a little bit deeper dive of how do you do it legally, but let's assume that we are doing it legally. How many times can you, are there any limitations around the number of times you can go to market, raise capital within the issuer group or for any one issuer or anything like that? There are no bright red lines, right? The SEC sets no limitation. The way they look at all this stuff is it's always on a case-by-case basis, right? And so, for example, if you look at the number of sponsors within the management entity, Historically, it has been just a couple people, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four. Um, These days, we're seeing 12, which looks highly suspicious. I don't think you need 12 people in the management of a syndication. And then another thing that they'll look at is, well, how often are you syndicating? And who are the other people that you're working with? If, for example, the same, I don't know, like five people are doing 10 deals a year, but it's always those five people. And, you know, they're, they always have the same breakdown. It's likely that they are really permanent business partners and that's what they do. They take down deals and, and that's great. However, if you have a person doing, you know, 10 deals a year, they're raising capital for 10 deals a year. They're part of 10 different management groups. You know, they have different cuts of each of the management groups. And especially, especially if their cut of the, the GP or the management entity is dependent on how much capital is raised, um, all of those signs are, are pointing in a very bad direction. And so what are the risks as a general partner, uh, assuming that you are, you know, listening to this right now and you're like, crap, I might be on the wrong side of this uh, line here. What, what are some of the risks that you're facing? Right. So there's different categories of risks and there's different risks to different people, right? So as far as the different categories of risk, on the first hand, of course, you are obviously not being compliant with SEC law and broker-dealer law. And so you can get in trouble with the SEC, with FINRA, because you know people who are raising money for other people technically need to have a broker-dealer license registered with FINRA. Um, that's at the federal level. Then you have to remember that there's also 50 state securities regulators. So if you don't get in trouble with federal regulators, you might get in trouble with your local state regulator or the regulator of, um, where that uh, where a particular investor is located if they've complained. That's all regulatory risk. And then there's litigation risk. And I like to tell people that the plaintiff's bar, which is the industry of attorneys that likes to 
represent people who sue other people for some sort of wrongdoing, they are not like regulators in the sense that regulators oftentimes, they just want you to cooperate with them. The litigators, on the other hand, sometimes they're paid by contingency fee or they're paid hourly, right? They, they do the billable hour. They have no incentive to be nice to you. And so you end up having a lot of bulldog regulators and you get oftentimes caught up in a lot of litigation, a lot of legal cost. And, you know, getting sued in court is, first of all, it's public record so everyone can see it. And, and secondly, it's just, it's never pretty and never a good use of anyone's time or money. So those are the risks. Now, in terms of who bears these risks, just remember that if you are the person who's actually raising the capital, there's definitely a lot of risk on you because you're doing things that are very non-compliant with securities law. To the extent that you are part of the GP or sponsor group or management entity that works with a capital raiser, you actually have a lot of risk too, right? There is a concept in law called, you know, joint and several liability. And anything that affects the overall entity, right, can come back to you. Um, the other thing I'd like to tell people is that let's say you are a real estate syndicator who is, you know, on this one deal, thinking of working with a particular capital raiser, but you're kind of not sure, just remember that anything that happens to that capital raiser, so for example, you know, five years down the line, maybe we're in a recession, investors on another deal sue that capital raiser, which in essence means they're suing another sponsor group, that actually affects your deal because you need to disclose all litigation, all current and pending court judgments, bankruptcies, things of that sort when you are going out and raising money from investors. So not only could your current investors get affected, but when you're raising capital in the future, you would have to disclose or you might have to disclose all of that because that is material to investors. So you really want to be careful who you associate with. And if I'm a limited partner on these deals, when and why do I care? Well, you would care because to the extent that another investor in the deal is for any reason unhappy, they could go ahead and sue the management entity. And usually in a syndication, the way these things are structured, there is an indemnification clause, right? And that indemnification clause basically says, hey, if the management group gets sued, then the money that we're going to use to pay all these legal costs are going to come from the syndication itself, which means it's coming from all the investors, which means their returns are going to be lowered. Are, are there trends to the filings of these lawsuits? Do you typically see more filings in down markets or any noticeable trends there? Definitely when there are down markets, you're you're definitely going to see a lot of litigation. Um when it's a more inexperienced sponsor, for example, like people who have, haven't been through the previous recession, right? They haven't necessarily learned the ins and outs of investor communication when things are going south. 
And the natural reaction for a lot of people is to clam up and to start ghosting your investors because they have nothing good to report. So they don't want to talk to investors and get hammered. When in reality, the opposite, you're supposed to be doing the opposite thing. You're supposed to be over-communicating, right? When you start ghosting people, that's when people start talking to attorneys. That makes a ton of sense. So I guess ultimately you want to make sure you're doing things right from the start with the right people um, and getting the proper legal counsel from the beginning to avoid a lot of these potential pitfalls that you might run into. And the proper CPAs. I have I have had clients go through issues before where they, they tried to be cheap about things or they just went to a CPA that was not necessarily good. And, you know, a couple of years later, they come back to me and they said, oh, we did this. That's all right. Right. And I'm like, didn't you talk to your CPA? Like, no, you have to, when, when you sell off the property, you have to reserve a little bit to pay off bills. Like what? You, you can't just like take all the money and distribute it out to people, you know? So just make sure you have good CPA help, good accounting help, good legal help. We've, we've had people do that. And they're, <laughs> they're like, wait, wait, I still have to pay bills. So how does this work now? It's like, well, uh, you got to go back to your limited partners. Get <laughs> 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 back in. That's kind of a dicey situation. Yeah, they get that. And we appreciate you throwing us another bone. On <laughs> So thank you. <laughs> CPAs are important. It's it's really hard to find good CPAs. So, you know, just like it's hard to find a good attorney, I think. You know, actually, while we're on that on the topic, you know, you're an entrepreneur yourself. You have your own company. You've done a number of different things in your career. Do you have any particular tax strategies that you've used um, either in your business or maybe you've seen your clients use that uh, stuck out to you? Hmm. Tax strategies. Um, I haven't done anything super creative. You know, I did once when I had a consulting company that was separate from the legal company, I did once set up an LLC for that. And that allowed me to set up a SEP IRA and that allowed me to save some in taxes. So that was nice. I don't try to get too creative around tax stuff, but I would say, (laughs) I would say though, that I have gone through many CPAs and and many attorneys as well. And what I've found over the years, just as a general business owner, is it's so important on that first introductory call to set expectations, right? And if you don't know what the expectations should be, you should ask the CPA or the attorney, you know, like, so what is the best way to communicate with you? How regularly should I expect to communicate with you? You know, what do you want out of your clients and what should I want out of you? Because it's taken a couple of years for me to just figure out like, what should the bar even be? And and I really didn't know that going in. and, And that's why it took so long for me to cycle through different attorneys, different CPAs, different accountants and I, I just wish I had learned that sooner. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting you bring that up because I've been I've been harping on that pretty much all 2019. Tom can attest to it with, with my team. It's it's you set very 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 clear expectations not only with clients but also our team internally. Right, get everything in writing. If you if Tom's going to volunteer to review a proposal, put it in writing so that our one of our other folks can hold him accountable to it. Something along those lines. So. It's not necessarily like I'm going to come and get you if, if these expectations are met, but it's just a, hey, when can I expect things to get done by? If I send in an email question, what is the average turnaround time like? Right. When should I start to be concerned, right? 
um, you got to ask those questions because a lot of CPAs, the, the problem that I have found with CPA firms, and, and I'm sure it's probably the same way with law firms too, is that you typically have like, uh, I don't know, you, you have like the rainmakers, right? You, you've got like me who goes and does all the podcasts. You got Tom that goes and does all the podcasts. And then what happens is those rainmakers, they start servicing all their clients because they're winning clients mm-hmm. and they realize, well, if I want to keep growing my business, I can't service my clients. So I'm just going to provide the bare minimum service and just hope that they stick around. Mm-hmm. That's typically when the expectations go out the window, the client experience drops. Yeah. So it's really important to, to make sure that you have those conversations up front. And I mean, feel free to ask. I have clients ask me or prospects ask me all the time, Hey, what does it look like when you guys double in size? Do I get passed off to an associate? What is the plan for me? And it's not that, okay, I'm not going to work with you guys if I can't work with Brandon or Tom. It's just, hey, I just want to know when things change, exactly. do I still have a spot here or do I need to go find another CPA? And I think it's a totally reasonable question to ask. Yeah. So I love the idea of asking uh, or just setting really clear expectations. And if your CPA can't give you clear expectations, that should be a flag. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing is just responsiveness is so important as well. And I'll say this as an attorney, like I've had to hire other attorneys before, especially when I used to be general counsel, right? My, one of my other companies right now, we have to hire attorneys because I don't know every area of law. And unfortunately, most attorneys are not totally up to date or up to speed, if you will, in, in how fast business works today. And so a lot of attorneys think it's still okay to, you know, get an email and then write a response in one week. <laughs> and I think that just drives the clients nuts, right? And then, you know, the other thing you always want to ask is like, what is the best way to contact you? Like I tell my clients, don't call me because I'm on the phone a lot. Email me or text me and I will either email you back or text you back if it's a simple answer. And if not, then I will call you so that we can go into it, you know, in between all my crazy calls. But, you know, otherwise, if we end up playing phone tag, it's just, you know, not going to work nearly as well. Plus there's, you know, time zone differences and stuff like that. Yeah, we, we, we do the same thing where we say we schedule all of our calls. If you call in, it's going to go right to an answering machine and we'll pick it up at some point, but it's not going to be immediate. Email is the best way to connect with us. And, and we just do that so that we, we can, again, set the proper expectations, right? So if you're the type of person that needs to be able to pick up the phone and have my cell phone and call me every day, you're not going to be a good client for us and you should look for another CPA, right? But having that expectation setting conversation up front helps kind of root that stuff out. And it's totally okay to ask those questions on, on how do you operate? And, and again, what should that email response time be? And if it doesn't align with what you need, then you look elsewhere. It's funny you mentioned the email response time because that's something that I've harped on since the beginning of our firm uh, with all of our employees. We have like metrics where I track it and everything. I make sure that everybody's getting under the 48-hour mark, which is my, I think, a pretty reasonable mark to set, mm-hmm. uh, at least for CPAs. But I also know that my competition takes two weeks to reply <laughs> because I always ask... Or they just never reply. It just gets lost in their inbox. You know, that blows me away too. It's like they... They're like engaged with the CPA. The, the CPA just never replies. I'm like, that's so bizarre. And you know, then we, you know, we run Facebook ads on on that. Per- anybody that's looked up this person, it's <laughs> 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 like, hey, we, we have great response time. Um, no, it, it's a problem in the professional services industry. Yeah. And I think one, it has to do with like just billable hours and how people process work. But I also think that the clients bear a little bit of burden of that responsibility. Because think about how our society has changed where 
everything is instantaneous for me. Right. I, can answer, I can look it up online. I can text somebody, whatever. And so they kind of expect the same thing. And we've recognized that as we try to get back relatively quickly. But I think that you're right. There's a lot of people, out, a lot of service providers out there that just don't, don't get it. And, and, and quite frankly, though, here's the other sad part. They don't need to. They don't need to. There's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need to. And that's the sad thing. There are many conversations that go on in the legal industry that are like, oh, maybe in law school, we should actually teach law students about, you know, like CRMs and how to send an email newsletter and, you know, like basically like how to run a business 101, which you know, might not be a bad idea because there are so many solo and small firms out there. Yeah, absolutely. What is the good response time in your mind? I like to, I I try very hard to respond within 24 hours, unless it is a complicated question, in which case, you know, it's just me calling them multiple times over the next several days to try and reach them, or we end up scheduling a call. Um, Sometimes if I'm traveling, it may take two days or if it's like over the weekend or something. But usually if it's an easy question, I'll, I'll respond as soon as I see it. All right, Tom, if Amy can reply in 24 hours, so can we. Yeah, I, I, I'm very much the same way. Uh, I When I see a message in my inbox, I have to respond to it if possible. If not, if it's a complicated question, I have to, of course, kick it out. But I do my best on that end. Um, so, Amy, well, a few more questions before we wrap up here. Um, outside of Bootstrap Legal, what is your favorite technology or software you're currently using in your business? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Actually, I know. I love Calendly. It's basically like calendar, but it ends with an L-Y. It has made scheduling so much easier for me. And you can automatically put in like a Zoom link or Google Hangout or a conference call line. So everything's all set up. All the client has to do is go and book it. Prevents a lot of phone tag. For some reason, it just works better than other calendar scheduling apps I've I've used. It's it's made such a big difference. And, you know, I used to have to have an assistant to schedule all my meetings because the other calendar applications never worked that well, but the Calendly works really well. We hear that we're big fans of Calendly too. And, you know, I can tell you, I have a lot of experiences of going back and forth on many, many, many emails with people and uh, a lot of brain power being used up, a lot of time being consumed for no reason. Calendly really streamlines that process for people. You send out the link, the client or whoever you're talking to, whoever's on the other end can uh, schedule that call at their convenience using the times that are available. And then usually only in extreme situations uh, where you have to actually manually schedule something. So definitely agree that Calendly is an amazing, amazing tool. So if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, uh, learn more about you or what you do in your business, what would be the best way for them to do so? Sure. They can just go on our website. It's bootstraplegal.com. Or if they want to go into the law firm website, it's jobsactlawyer.com. And then they can you know, reach out via Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn, but I just get a lot of like, you know, random marketing spam from LinkedIn these days. So I don't check it nearly as much. They can find me on bigger pockets. So we're going to go ahead for everybody listening. We'll go ahead and drop those links uh, in the show notes below. If you want to get in contact or learn more about what Amy has going on, you can do so uh, by clicking those links. And Amy, thanks so much for coming on today. It's been an amazing conversation for sure. Okay. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.